will be in 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 7, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then you have Judges, Ruth, and right after that begins 1st and 2nd Samuel, so that's about what, eight, nine books in, uh, 2nd Samuel 7. So as we find your spot, we uh, got to say happy birthday to somebody. And he's going to really not like this at all, but I'm going to do it anyways because I'm in front of a mic. We, uh, if you haven't yet, wish Mr. Charles a happy birthday today before you leave. So make sure that that happens. Give him a call. Tell him happy birthday. And we can make sure to put him under the light, limelight that he doesn't like oftentimes. Find your spot, 2 Samuel 7. Me in verses 8 through 16 this morning. If you found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's word? May you hear the word of Christ this morning. Now then, tell my servant David, this is God speaking to uh, Nathan. This is what the Lord Almighty says I took you from the pasture, from tending to the flock, and anointed you ruler over all my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, and raise, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish the kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be to me a son. When he does wrong, I will punish him for the, with a rod yielding, wielded by men, with floggings afflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as it was taken away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for gathering your church this morning that we might receive your word and that we might hear your word. Now implant it deeply into our hearts as it, is, as it is preached and move us to action. That we are not supposed to be just hearers of your words, but also doers of your words as well. And so, Lord, give us a breath of fresh air by your spirit this morning that you might motivate and move us towards action so that the world will know that we have proclaimed the King over all things, the name of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you might remember, in the month of August, we are moving through this topic of covenantal friendship. And we've dealt with Abraham, uh, excuse me, let me back up, Adam and Eve. Then we went to Abram. And now we're moving into David. And each of these, I hope you've seen that there's covenants 
made between God and each of these individuals. And this morning we're going to be looking at the covenant that God makes with David himself. But before we do that, let's travel back to grade school this morning. I do this often. Sorry if I keep taking you back to the earliest of times, but there's favored memories there. Take you back to grade school. It's time to play a game. You ready? There's 10 people in the game to play. So what do you do? We pick two leaders, right? Two leaders, and these two captains choose four other people to be on their team. And so in this line, you might be anxious about being chosen. Ah, I want to be on his team because we might win. Oh, he picked so-and-so. I want to be on that team. But you always wonder, as each classmate is chosen, am I next? Am I going to be the one chosen? Now, you might have been picked first, or you might have been picked last. Regardless, there is this time where you're anxious about who will choose me and when will I be chosen? Something similar happens in the biblical narrative when, once it comes to a God sending Samuel to choose David as king of Israel. Saul has abused time and time again the role he has had as king over Israel throughout his kingship. And so the Lord has chosen to hand the kingdom over to someone else at this time. So if you remember, Samuel, the prophet, shows up at Jesse's house and knowing which of Jesse's sons will be chosen as king. Excuse me, Nathan shows up to his house chosen as one of these new kings. And upon seeing the oldest, Eliab, he immediately thinks, whoa, this guy is big. He must be king. He's very tall. He has an appearance of height that is dominant over others. To which God replies, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then if you continue on in 1 Samuel 16, capturing more of this narrative of who is going to be chosen as king, Jesse calls Abinadab and has him pass in front of Nathan. And Nathan says, uh, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse then says to Shema, nope, not him either. Then Jesse has seven of his other sons passed before, and the Lord has not chosen any of these. And so he asks Jesse, the father, are these all the sons that you have? And then Jesse says, there is one left, the youngest, and he is tending to the flock in the fields. And so someone goes and grabs David from the fields, and he brings him before, and as he walks up, it, the scripture records that he was glowing with health and had the fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord says, rise, anoint this one as king. And so here you have David, the shepherd boy, the youngest of his family, becoming the king of Israel in this very moment. Of all of these different sons that come about, here comes the youngest and the one who is tending to the nastiest of the features, and that's tending to the sheep. He's been anointed to the service of God, and he is also to lead 
an entire people into growing prosperity and growing wealth. But there's a unique covenant that God makes with David in this passage in 2 Samuel. And it's the passage that we read just a few minutes ago. And we're asking, I'm asking you to look a little bit more closely at this passage this morning because there's so many riches to be found here. If you look at verses 8 through 11, that chunk of passage there, what you find is that this is a reminder to David. And he's asking David to seriously consider all the things that God has done on his behalf up into this point. So it's a historical reminder. David, you have been king for a time. Now look back in your past and up into this present. Here's what God says. God took him from the fields. God has appointed him as king. God has been uh, at his side ever since. God has won battles through this David. God is making a, a name great among all peoples through this David. God is establishing a place for his people to live and to thrive. God will shield his people from wickedness. God is the one who is going to give rest to his people through David. What if I were to ask you this question this morning? What have you accomplished in life lately? What are the things that you've done lately in your life? How would you reply? What language would you choose if I were to throw that question out in front of you? How would you reply? Would it, be, would it sound like this? I have done these great things. Or would it look slightly different? And, and, and how would you verse it? Would it be like this? God has done these things for me. You see the difference? Now, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this kind of question, this simple question that I'm throwing out to you. But I want us to really think about it because it's a very simple question that I'm trying to probe and get you to think deeply about because it is a question of can you see God's hand in your, in your life daily? Can you see His hand in your life weekly? I mean, in all seriousness, do you see that? Because that's the question that God is asking to David in verses 8 through 11. Have you seen what I've done on your behalf? All this goodness, all this grace, all of this prosperity that has been brought to Israel through you. Hopefully we can recognize the hand of God in our daily and weekly lives, in the most mundane and the most extravagant things in our lives. Because His hand has been plowing nonstop, daily, we just have to step back and see that His hand has truly been working. So I hope we can hear and receive this word this morning that God has done wondrous things for us. We just have to open our eyes to see them. Now look at verses 11 through 16. It is in these verses that we finally see the covenant that's delivered to David on behalf of God. First God says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up, for, uh, uh, raise up offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish this kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of God forever. Pay close attention to these verses because there's two interrelated things that God's talking to, talking to David about. First one is this. 
first house in verses 11 through 12 is talking about a house of legacy. I'm going to establish a legacy through you, David. And then if you jump a passage later in verse 13, it says that God is going to build a second and establish a second house. And it is a literal house that is going to be built. This is the temple, the house of God. But like I said, these two are interrelated. For the Jewish people, the house of God, the temple, the place of worship stands as a tangible reminder that God is with them and He is for them. He is building a legacy through this people of Israel, through this King David, but he's, they're reminded every time that they look up to this temple that God is still with them and for them. And He is in favor of them to continue building this wonderful kingdom on earth. And it, look, it is to look more like Yahweh's kingdom than any of, of the other nations' kingdoms. So keep that in mind because it's extremely important for the Jewish people that the temple is the concrete reminder that God is with them and for them. And this is why one of the reasons when Jesus says to tear down the temple in the New Testament and he'll rebuild it in three days, he's asking them to do something absolutely ridiculous in their heads. To tear down the temple? You're asking us to tear it down and then we will have no reminder that God is with us and for us. But of course, John tells us that he wasn't talking about the temple over there, but the temple himself. That he would be truly the symbol that God is with his people. So this house of legacy and this house of worship will come, notice, after David has passed. In verse 12 it says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. In other words, when you have passed away, I will raise up an offspring to succeed you. Then that flesh and blood will be established. That kingdom will be established through that person. I'm convinced that this is one of the hardest truths in my own life to be able to capture and to hold close to me and to really accept in a lot of ways, and it's this. It comes from Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God. But did you notice something about that? It doesn't say a time. We want a time stamp on that, God. All things work together for good when. He doesn't tell us when. Because we would like for it to read, all things work together for good on August 18th at 11, uh, 19 a.m. for those who love God. We want to see a tangible reminder that God's grace has been extended to us. And of course, we have plenty of those. But we need to be reminded this morning that good things come in God's wise timing, not ours. And so when he tells David that he's about to establish a kingdom and a house and a king forever, God means that he's going to do it when the time is right for God, not for David. Because if you pay attention to the rest of the passage here, David will only get to see these promises sprout. He never gets to see them grow into full fruition, just to see them sprout. Yet it's this simple and yet uncomfortable reminder that we don't have everything under control. 
David wanted to control that situation. He wanted to build the temple. And yet at that right moment, he said, all right, I can't do it. I know this is your timing, that you have a specific ordained time for this to happen. I give it up to you. God ordains David for plans bigger than David. Maybe we can cross out the name of David and put our name in there as well. God ordains Michael for bigger plans than Michael. Put your name in that and see the bigger picture that God is actually fulfilling in and through us, yet it might not be in the timing that we have as well. Let's transition to another point here in verse 13. Some of us probably get hung up if we're reading very closely in verses 12 and 13. First, who's this offspring? It says he's going to establish an offspring after you, David, and then he uses the pronoun he. He will establish this temple. He will build this legacy, and he will build this house. So if we were to read beyond First and Second Samuel, beyond this and the covenant that's made in, here in Second Samuel 7, you probably think, oh, yeah, this is a no-brainer. I've read beyond First and Second Samuel. I know that it's Solomon, David's son, because obviously he becomes king after David's long gone. He actually does build the temple because it's called Solomon's Temple. But even though he builds the temple and even though Israel does move in time, into a time of prosperity and great hope under Solomon, it seems as if verses 12 and 13 also are looking for another offspring, another he to come about. So is it about Solomon? Yes and no. That's the hard part of this passage. It's, it's a yes and a no. Because the covenant here made in uh, 2 Samuel 7 is God making this covenant with David. Yet it is partly fulfilled in David and partly fulfilled in Solomon. But that's not the whole story. Remember those key words in verses 13, in verse 13 through 16 earlier? Let me reread them. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be to me a son, but my love will never be taken away from him. Your house, verse 16, and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. The Hebrew word here is olam, and it really does mean forever. It means eternal. Solomon does build the house, the temple. He does begin this reign as king. Yet, there are other covenantal promises attached to this in 2 Samuel 7, and they're not entirely fulfilled in Solomon or David. What I mean by this is that the kingship the kingdom and the throne are going to be established forever. So when David and Solomon die, there's still alive and active promises there. So who will be this one after David and Solomon are in the ground to establish these, this covenant forever and to really fulfill the one who is to build this kingdom and this temple forever? I think you know the direction I'm going. But this kingdom does long for something, or I should say, someone bigger than David and Solomon. One whose kingdom is vast, 
whose kingdom is wide, whose kingdom, I shall say, global or universal, one who is the king and the true son of Yahweh, one who doesn't merely build a temple but is the temple of the Lord, one who experiences steadfast love and is the father of this son and whose kingdom and power and glory exist forever and ever. I hope you see this morning that this covenant God makes with David and later partly with Solomon is incomplete with those two individuals. That it longs for something else. And it is not fully met in them, but it is fully met and married in the person of Christ, the true king of Israel, who is the royal, of the royal lineage of David. We see that many times in the New Testament. And he is the one who has been appointed and anointed by the Father in order to rule and reign over all things in heaven and earth. So this covenant extends beyond David. It extends beyond Solomon and it longs for this Jesus who is to come as the true king. But what does this all mean for us, Michael? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Covenant with David, yeah, yeah, yeah. How does this covenant with David, this covenant with Solomon, make me a better follower of Christ? How does it shape and mold me into the image and likeness of Christ? How does it mold me into a better spouse, a better father, a better grandparent, a better employee? How does it mold me into a better friend and neighbor? Church, if Christ is king, hear that language, if he is the true king, if he is the true temple, hear this out. If he is king over every square inch of existence, if he is truly king over every square inch of creation, then every square inch of our lives is to announce, it is to proclaim, and it is to herald that this Jesus is truly king. Did you catch that? If God owns every square inch of creation, and if Christ rules over every square inch of our creation, then every square inch of our lives is meant to announce and proclaim him as king. So I want you to wrestle with that, because I am certainly wrestling with that daily. And I'll leave you with this. This could not be more clearly said. I'm sure it could be. Let me step back and say it could be more clearly said. But one of the most profound and clear ways that this was said was through a 20th century man by the name of C.S. Lewis. He said we had three options once it came to Jesus. You could either say that Jesus was liar, that he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. Those are your only three options that you have when you are describing who Jesus is. Let me read the larger quote that he has. I'm here trying to prevent anyone saying a really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept the claim that he is God. That is one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil in hell himself. You must make your choice, says Lewis. Either the man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him and demonize him and fall at, or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Here's the catch that Lewis says, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. Lewis wasn't actually the first to come up with this. The best that scholars can say is that a man by the name of John Duncan in the 18th century was the first to come up with the lunatic liar or lord options, what we call the trilemma. Instead of a dilemma, you have two options, the trilemma of three options. And Duncan said it the same way. Christ either is one, deceived by mankind, excuse me, deceived mankind by conscious fraud, he was just defrauding everybody. Two, he himself was self-deceived. He didn't even know who he was. Or three, he was divine. Let me tell you this. There is no way for us to get around that trilemma. No way. Those are our only three options to be weighed. And once it comes to us wrestling with if Jesus truly is king and Lord... We can say he's a lunatic. We can say he's a liar. But the best option based off the evidence is that he is Lord over all things. And let us truly wrestle with that. That if he is king over every square inch, let every square inch of our lives proclaim him as king. Can we be that people this week? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. All your goodness to us. Because I think we've all wrestled with that, that thought in our heads that maybe Jesus, you aren't who you say you are. Maybe you are just a great moral teacher. But maybe you're more. And quite possibly it is that you're more. And I understand the wrestling of that. I've done that. I know everybody here has wrestled with who you truly are, Christ. And I say to them, wrestle more. Because it is only in the wrestling and the casting of who you are and a little bit of doubt towards you that you continue to chase after us to reveal more and more of yourself towards us. And so, Lord, may we come to you with those questions. Those, that hopelessness, those bits of uncertainty and doubt. I hope we do that because that would be far more authentic and genuine than to just completely run away from you. So may you speak to us, not only this morning, but in the days ahead. And may we ask that question to you, are you Lord? And if so, reveal yourself to me. And so as we continue to walk in your ways, may we see that you do own every square inch of creation and that you call us to be better fathers and, and husbands and wives and spouses and grandparents and employees because you do own all things. But Lord, by your spirit, may you give us sight to see those things this week. And may we run the direction that you have called us to. May we run the race and the route that you have called us to in order to proclaim that good truth 
that good news that you have been made king over all things. Let us wrestle this week and let us also proclaim that you own all things, even our own lives. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.